chapter. We read the Gospel of John, chapter 13, and I'd like to read verse 1. The first verse of John's Gospel, chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. A real concern for many, or maybe some of you, is a concern for assurance of faith. Many struggle with the understanding of whether they are true Christians or not, and it depends partly on your character and partly on your upbringing and partly how you've been taught. And for many, it is a lifelong struggle to be able to say whether they are a Christian or not. And I want to speak to you this evening broadly on that subject but here it is on these last words of this verse here. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. In the 1800s, we in this country had a Princess Charlotte. She was a, a greatly loved princess, a bit like Princess Diana was for us a few years ago. And she gave her life, uh, was taken from her during childbirth. And the whole nation was thrown into terrible shock that Princess Charlotte should have lost her life in childbirth. William Gadsby was a pastor around that time, and with a pastor's heart, uh, you know him as a hymn writer, but he was a, a tender pastor as well, and he penned this hymn. I'm just going to read you the first and last verse. Pause my soul and ask the question, Art thou ready to meet God? Am I made a real Christian, washed in the Redeemer's blood? Have I union to the church's living head? But as still a total stranger to his precious name and blood, thou art on the brink of danger, thou canst face a holy God. Think and tremble, death is now upon the road. It's a very vital question that we should all ask ourselves. But knowing something of our human nature, those who have a hardness about them can listen to something like that and untouched. Those who have a tender conscience often are greatly troubled by that. And so many of us are familiar with that hymn and we have been greatly troubled by it even if we are Christians. And it is rather than to cause those who aren't Christians to evaluate their standing, it causes those who are Christians to doubt I fully understand why William Gadsby wrote that hymn at that time, and it, was a, it is a wonderful hymn, a, a very powerful hymn. But some of us use it in a way that William Gadsby didn't intend and use it to undermine our faith. Assurance is not vital. You can be a Christian all your life and have no assurance. Assurance is not eternally necessary. God's work can never be thwarted. And as it, our text says, having loved his own, he loves them to the end. And that is absolutely true, whether you can say you are a Christian or not, if you are one. Yet this lack of assurance debilitates so many, and I know something of that, and that's why I want to speak to you. It drags you down. It undermines your own faith. It robs you of so much joy. There should be a sense of joy in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And if you live continually in doubt, you don't have that joy. 
There should be in the midst of all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, there should be a sense of joy. There should be that sense of of joy in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. No matter what I pass through, and I know a little about some of you, you have passed through some very difficult times. But there is still that joy in Jesus Christ if it is real. If you are continually... Um, concerned about your own faith, it diminishes your concern for others. And that's not right either. You're so concerned about your own faith that you have less energy and less time to be concerned of others. And I don't think that's God-honoring. And and we should be concerned for the faith of others if we, by his grace, are, are Christians. The enemy can rejoice in that. If you live in continual doubt, the enemy is rejoicing, I'm sure. So not in any particular order, the nature of salvation, if not fully understood, leads to doubts. If your salvation is the result of a decision, and for some that is, at a certain time or a certain place, or if your salvation is based on a certain experience, then the time will come when you will doubt both the reality and the depth of that experience or what made you make that decision. If your faith is based upon your upbringing and how many former generations you have in the church or chapel graveyard, then too, you have no foundation for your faith. It's a simple uh, expression. The Lord God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. Some of us have that heritage of godly parents, grandparents and going back but that does not make us Christians we are thankful those of us who have that we are thankful for it but even then I'm going to turn that round the other way because Satan comes along and says you're only a Christian because your parents were or your grandparents were you're not really a Christian and so some of us battle with that regard too and I am so thankful I've got one or two very godly men who are friends of mine who have no Christian upbringing and the Lord has brought us to believe exactly the same things. And so we need to be aware of Satan's wiles and we need to understand what is written in the word. If, however, your faith is built on the word of God, which so clearly teaches that salvation is by Christ alone, faith alone in Christ alone, and and indeed in his finished work by grace alone, you have a sure and certain foundation. As an aside, I hope you continually ponder the amazing nature of grace. No wonder John Newton wrote that lovely hymn, Amazing Grace. It's almost a word that we've become too familiar with and we've devalued it, haven't we? Not intentionally, because it is truly amazing. I hope you ponder that sometimes. If your faith is built on the sure and certain promises of God and the knowledge that they are yea and amen in Christ and therefore can never be taken away because there are certain things that God cannot do. The first thing is God cannot lie. And if he has made a statement, it is true. And the second thing is God cannot change his mind. If someone changes their mind, they're not perfect, are they? God is perfect. 
And if you change your mind over a certain situation, it's because you didn't perfectly understand it in the first place. That's our experience as humans. God is perfect. He never changes his mind, and he never tells a lie. So our faith is built on what the Lord God has said, and it's an encouragement for us to believe what he has said. And I wish, and I'm speaking to myself, that we paid more attention to what he has said. We read these words, don't we? For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And so it's God's intervention in your life that causes you to be a Christian. And so, as I often say to my own folk, will you stop looking inside? Because you'll only find doubts and fears and anxiety there. Look to what God has said. And as I've just said, God cannot lie. And I want you to believe that. I desire that you will believe it. So if you're doubting this evening, what you're doing is doubting the word of God. In essence, you're doubting his character. Gary asked me to come and preach here on this day, and he knows, humanly speaking, well, well, I'm human, and as Gary is, he knows that I will be here. We give our word, and he knows that on this day I will be here. Well, that's character. But God is beyond that, because there are certain circumstances that could intervene and I couldn't be here. But with not with God, having given his word, it must happen. So if your faith is built on the promises and gracious entreaties of what God has done, what have you to doubt? Think of the words of of Paul, speaking in a different context, but he says, God forbid. God forbid that you should doubt what he has said. Is God capricious? Does he make wonderful promises? But it doesn't apply to you. No, he makes wonderful promises in his word. And if you believe them, they do apply to you. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord. And some of us are so thankful for his long-suffering. We have gone against him for year upon year upon year, knowing full well that we were going against him. And we have proved that he is long-suffering. Did the Lord Jesus Christ say, All that the Father giveth to me, shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, but not you. No, it doesn't say that. It says, all that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And you can rest upon that. Those are not the words of a prophet, they're not the words of an apostle. If they're in scripture, they're infallible, but they are the words of Jesus Christ. That statement is of the Lord. And it's reinforced by our text here. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loves them to the end. Our desire is to be reverent. I hope it is. It's always to be reverent. To come before our God in humility and fear. But do we sometimes lose the wonder of these truths? I'm anxious sometimes. I think we do. A friend of mine who's now almost 80... Um, And he was brought up, and and I'm going to use his phrase, and he says it like this, I was a South London boy. He was converted as a young teenager. 
He then sat under the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones for years. And he will often quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from his memory. God then raised him to be a pastor for many years. And now in his 80s, he's no longer a pastor. And we meet, a group of us meet together, and this man is part of that group, and we meet to study the word. And just occasionally, a glimpse of this South London boy comes out. And he will use a phrase, it might shock you this evening, I don't wish to shock you. He will use a phrase, when we come across a phrase like this, he loved them to the end and say, it blows your socks off, doesn't it? Well, that's not the language that we would normally use. But are we grabbed by some of these wonderful truths? Do we wrap them up in, in deep reverence and we lower our voice an octave and we use words like, well, that's deep and profound and wonderful? And do we use that language and it doesn't touch us? I fear there is a possibility of that. When was the last time you read a verse and it blew your socks off? Because sometimes the word does that. You read something, and that's what happened to me. I read this this week. He loved them to the end. And, and I, that, that thought of that phrase of my friend came to my mind as I read it. It's not a phrase I will use, and I, and I won't repeat it now, because I'm not sure of the, the reverence of it. But I understand what he means. It, it so grabs you that formal language seems inadequate. Have we lost something of the profundity of the grace of God as we wrap it up in precise theological language? I long to have a better grasp of theological language. Don't misunderstand me, but I don't want to use that for a mask to to overcome the wonder of these things that are here. When was the last time then you had that experience in reading the Bible? When was the last time and you read the scripture and you had to say, is that true? Is that real? I hope sometimes when you read the word of God, you have to ask that question. Such is the wonder of it. You think, can that possibly be true? Is this what God is saying? Well, here it is. The whole of Scripture is utterly infallible. I will stand and declare that from Genesis through to Revelation. You will not find one error in it. It is the Word of God. But there are those things in it that you think, wow. And I thought that when I read this week. Having loved his own, he loves them till the end. What, me? I don't know all of you. You and you. That's what he says. Can you not then read this text and not, um, my world is cars, I'm going to use a car expression, and not be pulled up abruptly by ABS brakes that pull you up almost instantly and make you pause and read this? Does it not draw your attention to them? Do you not stop and ask, what does that say? And ask that question. Is God so gracious that he will love us to the end? Well, yes, Jesus Christ here is promising that to his disciples and to us. He will never give up on us when we backslide. He has loved the Christian from before the foundation of the world. He's loved them before they were called. 
He's loved them during all of our lives and now he's promising to love us to the end. And so we can rest on his word. Surely it's almost one of those qualities that the angels desire to look into. If you're familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, you're, you're these words, can a woman forget her sucking child? Some of us sing that hymn sometimes. Yes, she may forgetful be, but I will never forget thee. And so what Isaiah is doing there is using the strongest human bond there is between a mother and a child. It is so strong that on the few rare occasions when a mother abandons a child, we are, we are amazed. We can't believe that a woman would do that. Sadly, it happens just occasionally. And the Lord is using, the Lord God is using that, the most strongest and powerful union in human nature and says, well, yes, occasionally a mother may abandon a child, but I will never abandon you. And the next verse goes on, I have graven you on the palms of my hand. Engraving is deep. It's not etching. It's much deeper than that. <clears throat> I don't think we have it so much now, but outside banks and, um, and solicitors and places like that, there would be a, gold, uh, a brass plaque with the names of those who work there. And it was deeply ingrained, engraved. No matter how many times it was polished with Brasso, that name would still be there. That's the point that Isaiah is making, engraved on the palms of your hand. Surely there's not better news for you this evening. Heartbreaking situations, bitter disappointments, your own sins failings. <clears throat> Sometimes a true man of God, like David, will fall. Sometimes, a man who knew so much better, who'd been with Jesus Christ for three years, will doubt. Sometimes, Thomas will do that. Sometimes, a man like righteous Lot will live closer and closer and closer to Sodom until God has to intervene and drag him out. Sometimes, a godly man who leads the people will get angry and strike the rock. Sometimes a man like Moses will do that. Sometimes a man like Peter, who was always impetuous, always want uh, to answer the questions. Sometimes, as, as we just read in our reading this evening, sometimes that man will deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes a man, a preacher of righteousness, the word describes him as, will get drunk and disgrace himself. There's a lovely phrase in Micah's, in Michael's uh, prophecy. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall arise. And is there one of us here this evening who hasn't fallen? I doubt it. We fall again and again and again. But the Lord says, he's loved you to the end. He will bring you through. It was true that, that this is true for the weeping prophet Jeremiah. It's true for a man who's suffered, suffered shipwreck and beatings and imprisonment. It's true for the Apostle Paul. Consider a court case. All the evidence has been heard. The person has been found guilty. 
the judge then begins to make sentence and says, I'm not going to pass sentence on you. I'm going to pass sentence on my son. And my son will pay the price of your crime. Will you not love that judge? Will you not have some love towards that son who has taken your punishment? Please don't ever push any illustration too far. But that's in essence what God has done. I mentioned this morning, he's laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God the judge has passed sentence on his son. We can go free. And he says, I will love you to the end. How will you respond? Will not your daily question be, Lord, in view of that, what will you have me to do? What can I do for you today? Lord, give me opportunities to serve. Draw me closer to yourself. This uh, chapter 13 and on is remarkable in this regard that chapter 12 is the last public ministry of Jesus Christ. And those closing verses of chapter 12 are quite remarkable too because from verse 44 on, he says in verse 44, he, he gives the command, believe, and then in verse 45, see, and then in verse 47, hear, and then in verse 48, he said, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words. And then in the end of verse 50, he gives this commandment. And some of you have heard and seen but have you been obedient to that command? Or are you by default rejecting? And so at the end of his public ministry, then he, he turns, as it were, and, and on this occasion here from then on, from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and then his prayer in 17 is directed only to the disciples. Yes, it's in the scriptures for us to learn, but there is something very poignant about it. And he is speaking to his disciples here. He knows what they are about to pass through. He knows what he's about to pass through. And he knows something of them. And he's, he's encouraging them, saying, yes, all that you're about to pass through, all the difficulties, all the perplexities that you are going to experience in the next few days and after then, don't forget, I've loved you to the end. And we need to do that. This statement is only true for the believers. In verse 27, we're told about Judas Iscariot going off to do that which was purpose. Judas hears these words and still goes off. If he had changed his mind at that moment, <clears throat> I have no scriptural warrant for this, but I am convinced that if he had turned back and said, Lord, forgive me, the Lord would have forgiven him. I don't want to get into the theological argument of that because I know that God had sovereignly planned and purposed that Judas would do that. So I don't want to get into that this evening. But such is the grace of God. If you come and confess before him, he will forgive you. I beseech you to pay attention to the word of God. There is nothing more important. There is absolutely nothing more important if you are seeking after Jesus Christ, I use that word with great tenderness. My heart aches for those who are seeking. Will you pay attention to the wonderful entreaties, 
the wonderful commands, the wonderful words, the promises that are in the word of God. And don't try and say, well, they don't belong to me or they don't belong to me. Read them and listen to them. Most of them that I'm considering in my mind are the words of Jesus Christ. I've already quoted one, whosoever cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And there are many others like that. I beseech you to pay attention. The Lord, immediately after this, going back to those of us who are Christians, does something quite incredible. He washes the defeat of his disciples. Washing the defeat of disciples, I'm sure you know, was, was the job given to the lowliest of, of servants in the house. The roads were dirty and dusty, and when you went to visit someone, the lowliest the servant there would be given the job of washing your feet. And Peter so often doesn't fully understand what's going on. And so it's important to us in the context of our text to understand that. He loves us to the end, but we fall, we sin, we backslide, we fail. We fail to do what we ought to do, and we do those things we ought not to do. And the Lord comes along and says, yes, I know. Let me wash your feet again. You got them dirty today. Let me wash your feet again. The roads are dirty and dusty. There are sheep and goats droppings. There are camel droppings. And you've got your feet filthy today. Let me wash them again today. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some of our righteousness. No, the word of God doesn't say that. It says all. That's why I'm saying pay attention one of the reasons some of us hold in such high esteem the King James Version is the precision of the language. And let that encourage you. He doesn't say some of your sins. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There isn't any unrighteousness that he will not um, cleanse you from. Yeah, your feet need washing like mine, day after day, week after week. <clears throat> Excuse me. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet, all spoiled and blotted, and gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, my master? I've soiled this one. He took my day, all soiled and blotted, and gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. And some of us, day after day, I've soiled it again, Lord. I've soiled it again. And he comes and washes our feet and says, I have loved you to the end. You have failed. I do not fail. Christ here is demonstrating it. He knew that all his disciples were about to forsake him and flee. We concentrate on Peter, but they all forsook him and fled. 
He knew that his hour was come. He says that in the beginning of this verse. Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world. And I'm sure I've said to you before, but as a man I tend to have tunnel vision. If you give me a task, I just think of that task and I, I tend not to think of other things. Maybe that's a male trait, I don't know. But the Lord knows everything he's got to do. He knows all that he will pass through in the coming hours. And yet still he speaks with wonderful tenderness to his disciples. He gives them that instruction towards the end about loving one another. But he's he's saying here, yeah, I have loved you and I will love you to the end. It's almost as if he's saying, yeah, you will all forsake me in a few hours. I know that but I have loved you to the end, and I will love you to the end. And, and after my resurrection, it is the sovereign purpose of God that you will go out and begin the ministry. You will go out and fulfill Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, go out to all the world and preach the gospel. You will begin that process, and you will need to know that I have loved you to the end because you have just let me down in public. I know that. That's what the Lord is saying. I mentioned this morning of his tenderness to his, to his mother and, and the Apostle John. I don't want to go over that again. You, if you think then that I'm exaggerating this evening, I just want to close with giving you some scriptures to show you that, that the essence of what I'm trying to put over to you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you nearly right, almost clean. No. It says, faultless for the presence of the glory with some happiness. No, it says, exceeding joy. I don't want to use that South London boy's expression again because I'm not sure about it. But can you not read a verse like that and see something of what makes that man use that exclamation? Does it not? Is that what it says? Yes, that's what the word of God says. Exceeding joy. He will keep us from falling. Wherefore he is able to save them unto the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Uttermost. That's Hebrews chapter 7. There is no place that you can go. There is no sin that you can descend into that he is not able and willing to cleanse you and to bring you back again. In his wonderful prayer, I mentioned John 7, 13 through to John 17, he's speaking to the disciples. And John 17, we refer to him as the high priestly prayer. And in that he says, Father, I will they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me, from before the foundation of the world. Do you think that God the Father will not answer the prayer of his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That is incomprehensible. And Jesus Christ here is asking, I will that those you have given me will be there, that they may behold my glory, and one day by God's grace, I'm going to quote John Newton's word, amazing grace. Every Christian will be there. 
Be confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. See there again, stop looking in. It's Christ's work. He has begun a good work. My father was a master craftsman, and if he started something humanly, he would finish it. My heavenly father is a far superior master craftsman than my own human father. And if he has begun a good work, he will finish it, and it will be perfect. I'm not much good. A bruised raid he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. A bruised reed is useless. Once you bend a reed over and it breaks or cracks, no matter what you do, it will never heal. And a smoking flax is of no benefit at all. It just gives off stinking, belching black smoke, no light. But the Lord says, no, even that I won't quench. I'll raise it to a flame again. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you into his kingdom. I have loved you, and I will love you to the end. Amen. Well, let's sing our closing hymn this evening, hymn number 760. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Hymn number 760.
Almighty God, we have considered some profound topics this day. We have sought to come to Calvary and see the Lord Jesus Christ there suffering and bleeding and dying. And then this evening we've tried to understand something of his incomprehensible grace and of his keeping mercy and of his promise that he will keep us to the very end. We pray then, Lord, that we may ponder on these wonderful truths and that we may indeed be blessed having met together in this place. And now in a few moments we will gather around your table and your word gives us that command, this do in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. We pray then, Lord, that we may be kept by your grace until either our days end or the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And so we pray, Lord, for the, this wonderful, simple remembrance service, that the bread that we eat, speaking of his broken body, and the cup, speaking of his shed blood, we remind ourselves that there can be, without the, the shedding of blood, there is no remissions of sin. There had to be that blood shed. It had to be the blood of an innocent, perfect man, the man Christ Jesus. May we come to this table then with a renewed sense of wonder and awe that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to do this for every believer. Lord, we ask all of these things again in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>